Hello and welcome to Joe's Art History, a podcast which celebrates all things art historical every single day. It's episode 11 and on today's episode I am speaking to the wonderful Lynn Hanley who is an art historian and tour guide based in London. Lynn has a passion and a real love of sharing art history's quirky tales and looking, as you will, beyond the canvas. Lynn runs the Instagram account called Beyond the Palette as well as Beyond the Palette Art Gallery Tours. She is a real pleasure uh, to speak with and, if I'm completely honest, a breath of fresh air within the art history realm. Today we sit down and talk about Titian's Poesia, a collection of six paintings completed by the great artist under the patronage of a soon-to-be Spanish king. We speak about not so much the stories of the Poesia, but rather the history behind the paintings themselves and just how far and wide this group of six paintings has actually travelled. They're currently brought back together for an exhibition which is currently at the time of recording, which is November 2020. They are currently at the National Gallery in London at an exhibition called Titian, Love, Desire, Death. And they will be there until what we believe, thank you very much, COVID, until January before they go off into a little bit of a world tour as a group of six. They'll be heading up to Edinburgh after London and then they'll be heading to the Prado in Madrid and then off to America. But we'll get onto that, like I said, in the podcast. Lynn is such a great person to speak about these paintings. Not only does she have a real deep passion and love for these beautiful paintings, this beautiful series by Titian, but she is a great example of how there's more than just what meets the eye within art history. It's not just an explanation of what an artist is trying to depict, but actually sometimes the real interest comes in who perhaps used to own the paintings and what that says about them and where they used to keep them, which you'll find out lots in this podcast. Just a word of warning before we continue, at some point in the podcast there seems to be a kind of overlap when Lynn and I speak. It happens around about the 20 minute mark and then sadly it happens again at the 40 minute mark just as Lynn and I are sort of signing off and saying goodbye to each other. So we're not talking over each other, I I just don't understand what's happened and this is the second time something like this has happened in the recording so I'm really sorry. It doesn't distract or um, deter from the message and the quality of the the content within the podcast. Um, It just sounds a little bit odd for a few seconds it's just a heads up (laughs) okay so but just sit back and relax and enjoy Lynn and I talking about the incredible Boasia by Titian. So Lynn today we are going to be talking about this Titian exhibition which happened at the National Gallery in London and it was called Love, Desire, Death. I think the obvious first question to ask you is for people listening who might not know, who was Titian or who is Titian? Yes, well, definitely who was Titian. He, <laughs> he's very definitely dead, which is such a shame because, oh my goodness, would I have loved to have met that man. 16th century Venetian artist, essentially. He was very prolific. He worked for numerous very high profile patrons, but never for one single one. Incredibly good at plate spinning was, uh, was Titian. And 
Yes, and and so he was a sort of natural choice for Philip II of Spain, who wasn't king at the time that he first met Titian, to sort of complete a, a commission. And this is essentially what this exhibition is all about, is about this commission that he completed for uh, Philip the second of Spain, yes. am I correct? In yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that in itself is really quite interesting, actually, because it's it's a commission that was probably largely driven in content by Titian. So we don't really know very, very much, but Titian and Philip II, who was, um, he wasn't, King, as I said, at the point that they met. We know that they met in Augsburg in 1550-1551. And it was probably at that point that they spoke about several things, um, including the fact that Philip wanted Titian to create a series of erotic works for him. Um, Not just erotic works, there were religious paintings thrown in there as well, but I think the erotic ones um, were the the, the most interesting and certainly they are, as you might have gathered, the um, subject of the exhibition, Love, Desire, Death. So, yeah, so Philip, fairly young, um, kind of wanted to build up his collection a little bit in the shadow, to be honest, of his father, Charles V, who Titian had also known and, and painted. They met, they discussed this commission and and off Titian went to create some of the most extraordinary works in my opinion, ever painted. Tell us a little bit about this series of paintings. I mean, how how many are in the series to begin with and what is the, the inspiration behind the series? So there are six in the series. There might, it, it possibly it was intended that there, there might have been more, but there are six in, in the series. And the inspiration was... Ovid, actually, so Ovid's Metamorphosis. So already, so Ovid, um, just to, to go back, was a Roman poet from 8 AD. And, and what he did in Metamorphosis was weave together stories from Greek mythology. So if you know anything about about Greek mythology, um, you will know that the, the stories already, the material for these paintings is already really quite juicy. In fact, then the lives of the paintings kind of match the material, to be honest. So he created stories from um, from Ovid's Metamorphosis, or, or Titian took the stories from, from Ovid's Metamorphosis. But what he wanted to do was he really wanted, I think he was testing himself, actually. So he was in his 60s at this point, Titian. And I think he really wanted to elevate the art of painting um, because poetry poets you know this was all considered quite a scholarly art and and something that was very much looked looked up to poets were looked up to but painters artists at that point weren't really they were more um just craftsmen you know there wasn't anything cerebral particularly about painting um, or considered to be at, at that time and i think what titian really wanted to do for philip ii in these works was to to bring the qualities of poetry into painting to elevate paintings and the work of the painter to to the level with all the sort of lyricism and sensuality that um, that that would entail so it was that was a very long answer to your question, wasn't it? 
no not at all not at all I thought it was beautiful and <laughs> I, can you tell I'm passionate about them I think they're fantastic um oh but they're brilliant they are, though. <laughs> they are brilliant um so so he got his inspiration from Ovid but I think he was also his his inspiration was to try to elevate painting and I think it was a gift for Titian because I think that he had the freedom. It certainly seems in terms of any documentation that has been found or not found, um, perhaps more to the point, um, that that he was given pretty free reign, which was really quite unprecedented, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly that it was a, a future king, essentially, that was paying for these. And there wasn't really a sort of tight brief, Completely. if you will. Um, and And how interesting that you said that poets were considered these um, sort of top-notch people in society and artists were mm -hmm. not and how I, I can't help but like sort of compare that to today I think if people poetry now I, I think there's it's very much a flip almost um, and and sort of a, an artist sort of stance and perhaps someone that that takes poetry I, yeah. I just think it's so so it? interesting um so from these poems this is where the series gets their name and it's this is where I get it wrong uh Po poesia. Yeah, poesia. This is how you pronounce it. Poesia. Um, we can say poesia. That sounds Italian, right? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, and it's all it's a, they're very sort of racy painting, so it has to sound sexy. Completely, so. <laughs> and everything sounds sexy in Italian. <laughs> um, so we're not really going to talk about the the, sort of the story of what uh, Titian has depicted in these, because the National Gallery themselves have released an incredible sort of series right at the start of this year. Um, of where they kind of delve, the curators go around and they delve in deep into each story with the, um, the, within the series. But what's really interesting and what sort of you're bringing to the table today, Lynn, is the story behind the canvas almost of these incredible artworks because they really have done the rounds. Oh, so they to speak. really have, yeah. <laughs> I, um... I think, as I said earlier, I, I think it's kind of hilarious, well, not hilarious, um, but um, charming, really, that their their own lives, their own biographies, have um, have matched in many cases those of the uh, the stories inside them, or not the biographies, but the stories inside them. Um, yeah, definitely, they they all started off fairly normal. But then it kind of all sort of started to kick off in the 17th and 18th centuries and they all went, uh, they all went different ways. So the, the series itself was painted um, between 1551 and 1562. Yeah, exactly. Like so, as I said, um, Philip and Titian. Can we call them Philip and Titian now? Phil and Tish? Philip and Titian. Yeah, of course. You can never call them Big Phil. Phil and Tish. That's so rude. Uh, you wouldn't have liked that, I'm fairly sure. Um, they So after they'd met, um, and we, we kind of assume that 1550, 1551 was when they discussed this um, this, this series of works. Um, and, and by the way, I think basically Philip II's stipulation was, was that, um, can you please stick a few nudes in there? Because these were erotic works. And, uh, and Titian said, yes, I can. And in fact, just as an aside, if you look at all the works, um, you absolutely have nudes in all sorts of different positions, you know, one from the front, one from the back, from the side, standing up, sitting down. <laughs> it's kind of, so if if that was if that was Philip's um stipulation, then um brief nailed not <laughs> out the ballpark, basically. 
It's so funny because I've been looking at these in preparation for um for this podcast and speaking to you. And you're so right. There's barely oh, any no, clothes I mean, at all. Exactly. And where there are clothes, also, you'll notice that they're sort of being, um, they're perhaps sat on, you know, so in Venus and Adonis, she's sitting on a very sumptuous um, sort of wine coloured velvet it looks like a tablecloth but it's actually a, a cape I think or, and, 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 and I think basically what that serves to do is just allow the viewer to imagine what a bare bottom on velvet might feel like um, so it's all he's so clever with bringing the senses all of your senses into play he's um, he's a master he's a master but yeah so these were all sent to to philip as they were completed um so in the 1550s and into the early 1560s they were all sent to madrid apart from actually venus and adonis which was the second painting that titian completed for philip it feels a bit wrong calling him philip philip the <laughs> second um because he was in fact philip ii was in fact in um 1554 he was in london so that painting was delivered to london venus and adonis was delivered to london um and the reason that he was in london was because he married mary tudor that married mary tudor didn't last very long before she died didn't she i think it's only like four years or something but so so that went to london and then um when he moved back to spain i think he ascended the throne i think i'm right in saying 1556 and so they were all probably in the alcazar in um just outside of madrid where they stayed but they only just about managed to hang on in there for for the duration pretty much of the 17th century most of them um because because they were all part of a fantastic negotiation um between Charles the well the, the Prince of Wales so um so now I'm in in Britain so Charles the first who was then the Prince of Wales actually traveled to Spain in the early 17th century to woo the Spanish Infanta so these almost almost got sent to Britain in the early 17th century as part of marriage negotiations. Um, so, so they sort of became pawns in in wedding negotiations in, in this marriage negotiation. But of course, this whole marriage negotiation, Protestants, Catholic, um, you know, the basically Catholic Spain was very much trying to um, also boost Catholicism in, in Britain or England. Um, and so along with these wedding negotiations, there was a, a whole raft of, of stipulations from the Catholic Church for Charles I. Um, but the story goes was that Charles I was out in Spain, um, sort of taking part in these negotiations. And as negotiations went on, he pretty much agreed to everything, which was alarming and very surprising marvelous for the spanish they thought they were doing great um but it, it turns out that he felt that he was basically being held hostage by the the spanish king so this isn't philip the second now we've moved on obviously so this is now philip the fourth we're in the 17th century um 
and and so as soon as all of, the, all of these negotiations were pretty much wrapped up and and charles was able to um to leave the vicinity of the of, of the king um basically as soon as he escaped um he completely repudiated the agreement um and as and as you know and because he repudiated the agreement the paintings which you know, as as each negotiation, as he acquiesced to, you know, one thing after after the next, you know, another painting went into the uh, into the shipment or was, you know, into the crate to 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 ship, you know, and another one and another one. You yeah. Know, yes. Okay, I'll do that. Another painting goes in. Another painting goes in. Um, he <laughs> to be to be sent to him as a yeah. They knew that he liked art, um, and uh, and then as he repudiated the agreement, you know, I can imagine them somebody scrabbling to uh to remove them all from this crate very hastily so that they remained in this yeah. <laughs> get to the port <laughs> get them out they're not having them um yes yeah, so a quite a a diplomatic um incident it's just incredible really because charles the first uh, of of england he he yeah. was a huge patron of the arts and famously when he was beheaded all his collection was was sold and dispersed um, and the money went back into the state. So how funny to think that these Titian works could, could have been part of that. Yeah, they could have been part of it. They could have been part of it. So they all stayed together. So what's what's next well, in, they, yeah, in the so story? Well, they did all stay together. Um, apart from, it seems that at some point in the 17th century, um, Perseus and Andromeda um, was probably sold we don't really know um but it then turned up in the collection of the flemish artist anthony van dyke um so actually <laughs> that one did come to britain um before the rest of them yeah so van dyke oh. at that point was charles the first again off he you know up he crops um was court painter to charles the first so perseus and andromeda was in his collection and he he absolutely loved Titian van Dyck. Titian was his complete hero, and and it seems that it was really celebrated Perseus Andromeda in this collection for for quite some time, and it was copied and so on. Um, and then it kind of fell out of favour, um, and that one Perseus and Andromeda actually only then resurfaced in eighteen fifteen when it came up for sale, and and. At that point, it, it did stay in the UK. It was sold to the Marquis of Hartford. Um, um, if any of, any, any of your listeners have been to the Love, Desire, Death exhibition, they'll know that it, um, it was lent to the exhibition by the Wallace Collection. So it, was, it is part of the, the Wallace Collection. It was sold to the Marquis of Hartford generation down the line. Um, his son then eventually bequeathed it to his Ill illegitimate son, Richard Wallace, Wallace Collection. And Richard Wallace was the first, I probably since Van Dyke, to really treasure Titian's Perseus and Andromeda. Um, and he treasured it so much that he hung it in his dressing room, um, which was basically his bathroom. So I like to think of Richard Wallace soaking in a bath enjoying the image of Perseus and Andromeda <laughs> because the um 
because there's the Perseus in Andromeda. There's a there's a big sea monster yeah. in it. Is this the? Yeah, am so I correct in thinking this is, is yeah. this is this so one? This is, uh, this is Perseus saving Andromeda from this uh, horrific sea monster. So it's one that ends happily. Um, yeah, he manages to release her from her chains, and uh, and carries her off. Um, but uh, yeah, so that it was it was treasured. I think when it was um, it was in Richard Wallace's collection. He died before his his wife. Um, so his widow, Lady Wallace, eventually died um, in eighteen ninety seven and bequeathed the painting to the nation along with the rest of the Wallace collection. But there, it's um, it's interesting because I think the National Gallery thought that they probably wouldn't be able to include Perseus and Andromeda in the Love, Desire, Death exhibition because the terms of Lady Wallace's will were that the Wallace collection should always remain together. Yeah. Really? Um, and, you know, and, and that kind of included, I, I don't know the exact wording, but the, but the way that it was interpreted was that, you know, so nothing could be sent out on loan. You know, it just always had to be in situ as it was um but really really fortunate for the national gallery was that actually at the time that they were putting together the love desire death exhibition which must have been several years ago um the wallace collection or the trustees for the wallace collection were revisiting the terms of the will and and thought okay and we're actually beginning to think okay well maybe we can sort of you know lend things out you know we can't sell any of the collection but if there's a really the important yeah. exhibition you know perhaps it would be okay for us to 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 send something out on loan um and so they when you know they they entered negotiations with the national gallery and agreed that it could be part of the love desire of death exhibition but i think it was only allowed to be in london oh, yeah, so, oh really that's so i didn't know that when the exhibition was announced it wasn't going to be in the national gallery this particular painting um um and you know but you could you know, hop skip and a jump wallace collection national gallery not too far away at all you know happy days um but then they they decided that they they would um lend it to the national gallery but i don't think that it was due to travel i mean <laughs> it's kind of ironic isn't it you know these days now traveling anywhere so as far as i'm aware it's only going to stay in london but i don't know oh because this brings us on to like another point that i don't think we've mentioned that these six paintings haven't actually been shown together no. in a number of years um since since yeah. they were with um philip ii and they've all kind of been dispersed all over the world that's what's so interesting and why this exhibition is so exciting and then together perhaps minus uh Perseus Perseus and, and Andromeda, um, yeah. perhaps minus them but it's going on a little world tour almost so it's going up to Edinburgh and then I read somewhere it that is it's then because, going to the um, so there's two two works in the exhibition that are in London so Perseus and Andromeda which is in the Wallace collection and then um, Danae which was the first painting that, that Titian created for Philip II that is in Apsley House um, which basically was because that remained in in Spain until um, until essentially the Duke of Wellington helped the Spanish kick Napoleon and Napoleon's troops out of 
Spain, beginning of the 19th century. And so they said, oh, thank you very much. Have a painting. Um, so that's also in the UK. So it started in London. Um, and then because the um, two Dianas, Diana and Callisto and Diana and Actian, were bought for the nation eventually, uh, they had quite a story, um, in 2008, they're shared between the National Galleries of Scotland and the National Gallery in London. So then the exhibition is moving on to Edinburgh. Eventually, God knows when. Um, I think it's supposed to be January now. Um, yeah. Then because some of the works, um, so which one is in um, Venus and Adonis is in the Prado. Um, so it's going to the Prado. And then, of course, the Rape of Europa is in Boston. So that's it's 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 going to all of the the places um, that have contributed to the exhibition. That's amazing. So it's yeah. a real sort of international sort of exactly. collaboration, really, this project um, and sort of reuniting this series. It's it's incredible. So you said um, so Diana and Acton and you know, Diana and Callisto have quite an interesting background. So do you want to tell us a little yeah, bit more about so, their history? Oh, my goodness. So they um, they remained in the Spanish collection until in the, 18, in the early 18th century. They, along with the Rape of Europa, so those three paintings kind of shared a history um, for, for quite some time, were given as a gift to the French ambassador to Spain. Um, so they ended up in France and eventually they ended up in the collection of the Duke of Orléans, who at that time was regent for Louis XV of France. So we're talking early 18th century, sort of 1718, 1720, sort of, you know, around about those years. Um, he was a busy man, the Duke of Orléans. He is another one. I mean, my God, you know, dream dinner parties, Titian and the Duke of Orléans would definitely be two. Really? Along with I think Brian <laughs> Lippi, who's another one of my um, art history heroes. Yeah, so ended up in the, in the collection of the, the Duke of Orléans, who had a, a fantastic collection. Um, really, really fantastic. It was it was very famous. Um, but he was kind of regent by day and did all of his um, you know proper important stuff by day but he was a complete party animal um and i suspect because he had his most erotic paintings in one particular room um and i suspect that at some point in their histories both of the diana paintings and the um and the rape of europa would have been in this room it was called the blue room and he would have, I don't know oh. how he had the stamina, I mean, big hand to the Duke of Orléans. Um, he, he'd, he'd do his day job and then he'd invite guests to come for dinner in the evening and they would go in these special evenings into the Blue Room where all of his erotic works were hung. And they would have dinner first of all, but no servants were allowed to come into the dining room, apart from maybe to supply them with more champagne oh. because apparently the average champagne consumption per head was three bottles he knows how so he knows how to throw a party, party. This so is <laughs> this is just the warm-up <laughs> we haven't so even got to the blue room fantastic time in the blue room and i just i just think so at the top of um at the top of the rape of europa there's this little there's this little kind of 
cherub um, whose eyes are like he's, they're popping out of his head. And, you know, he's kind of looking at Europa. But I just think, my God, if he was in that blue room. He would, his eyes would have been out on stalks, I think. <laughs> so then they would go off and they would go off to a ballet or something or an opera um, where, by the way, um, the Duke of Orléans had, um, depending on where they were, but he had um, a sort of a, a bedroom, a salon um, just off the, um, the theatre um, so that if his guests were overcome with amorous feelings, they could they could go and avail themselves of this room. Or maybe, you know, let's, OK, so let's bring this oh, a bit down go. to earth now. Maybe after three bottles of champagne, some of them needed a bit of a snooze. I don't know. <laughs> who knows and then they would apparently all go back he lived in the palais royal in paris um and they would all go back and and half the time they would bring back a load of ballet dancers ballerinas with them or performers um, who according to some sources half the time would perform naked ballets so you can see where all this is going yeah um and uh, and they would cavort around until essentially footmen had to shove people into their carriages when they were essentially too drunk to walk or speak anymore um so these parties were absolutely legendary apparently um peter the great of russia was a real party animal but even he refused the second invitation because he couldn't cope with it <gasps> Oh my gosh. So I love that. I love that those paintings of the two Dianas and the Rape of Europa were all part of that scene. If oh my gosh. Talk, if they if could they talk. Could talk <laughs> a lot to say. They would. They, but I mean, I imagine that they probably nearly got destroyed by the Duke of Orleans' son, his name escapes me at the moment doesn't really matter um he was very different to his father as is so often the case um so he was really quite purient and um and he destroyed a couple of Correggio paintings um, in the Duke of Orleans, his father, the Duke of Orleans collection, um, because they were too saucy. Um, so similar, similar subjects, really? actually, from uh, from Greek mythology, and they have been restored. But it's, it is a minor miracle that he didn't get hold of um, the Diana paintings and the and the Rape of Europa. So a lucky escape. Love, Amazing. I love that history. But then, oh my goodness! So then the um, then the Rape of Europa was sold off. Uh, so after the yeah French Revolution and, and so on, sold and actually the the two Diana paintings and the Rape of Europa then did come to Britain. So they were always destined to be here. I think there is something that was just dragging those those paintings, particularly the two Diana paintings over to the UK they might have escaped a couple of times or yeah once at least but they they did end up here so yeah they ended up here after the the, the French Revolution um, and and the rape, rape of Europa was then bought by a lady called Isabella Stuart Gardner where eventually it did it survived another another potential disaster so Isabella Stuart Gardner was um, a real patron of the arts and in fact, have you been to um, her um, museum in Boston? No, in Boston, no. But um, I, I, my, my heart sort of leapt. I had no idea that she owned this painting because I know mm. of Isabella Stewart Garden's museum because of the very famous 
the very famous art heist that happened there but that's not what we're talking about we can get on to that i suppose but um no but i've never i've never it ever is. been but it sounds I like this incredible place ago, and i hadn't really done my research so i walked in and i knew that there were some great pieces um and i and like literally every room i think that <laughs> my fellow visitors thought that i was completely bonkers because in every room i was sort of let out a little squeal of delight <laughs> But she has some absolute, within art history, she has some absolute stonker key pieces in her collection. And oh. no wonder, like, no wonder I would be the same. It's so great when you see these things and to see them in real life as well is so special. And you get, particularly somebody like Titian, where you need to see it in real life to understand the colour and the sort of energy and, that oh, really sort so of radiates right. from it. mesmerising in um, in reality in mesh which is a great word for mm. petition but yeah so but she yeah, in, incredible incredible woman um she almost didn't buy this or it almost wasn't offered to her so she wanted to buy um Gainsborough's blue boy and she was all ready to make this purchase um, when something happened and it was withdrawn from sale and she was pretty disappointed. Um, but her art dealer, he knew her taste and I think he pretty much knew that um, she would snap up the Titian. He'd already, in fact, offered it to another buyer, but very carefully or very cleverly, rather, he hadn't sent a, a photograph Um of, of, the, of the artwork can you imagine that these days <laughs> no we haven't got an image do you want to just no, buy it no. <laughs> trust me it's great <laughs> but her art dealer um is somebody who bernard branson is who was very good friends and in close dealings with one of my favorite people from within uh, art history uh, yeah sir joseph devine oh i love sir joseph devine he's so cheeky and really quite dodgy i think there's some dodgy dealings between the two of them but I think they're they're so interesting. But I've got another podcast about Devine if anyone's interested in that sort of relationship. But Bernard Branson was the one that sort of offered. He did, the yeah, he did. We've got we've got very Isabella. funny, quirky, naughty tastes, haven't we? I think we both we both like scratching the surface. Yeah, kind of the, the the bonkersness and the funniness and the naughtiness. I think. Um, well, that's I, I think what why I love that is because in art history, everyone thinks it's very sort of prim and proper and you need to be very well educated. And it's this. But actually, when you get even just like an inch under the surface, it's all ju it's just a riot. riot. It's that amazing. Everyone. Good expression. <laughs> Orgy of craziness and fun. Um, but uh, yeah, so he so he hadn't showed um, this this other purchaser uh, uh, you know, any kind of image. Um, took it to Isabella Stewart Gardner straight away and she's like yes I am you know she agreed there and then on the spot paid 20,000 pounds for the rope of Europa and then um, and then wrote to her dealer um, I'm just going to quote this she said I'm back here tonight this is after the, the the painting had been delivered she said I'm back here tonight after a two days orgy the orgy was drinking myself drunk with Europa and then sitting for hours in my Italian garden at Brookline, thinking and dreaming about her. Lovely. Well, I love that go. she <laughs> went to such a good home and that she loved it so much. And I, and I am delighted that she had it because it yeah. is beautifully displayed in the museum. Um, but yeah, but nearly, I can't believe that it didn't get stolen. In, it has to be the most audacious art heist 
in art history or certainly is up there with them, isn't it? I mean, you know, St. Patrick's Day, 1990, um, oh, yeah. two men disguised as policemen just gain access to the museum, walk straight in, um, tie up the guards and stole about $500 million worth of artwork. I know it's just, and they got away with Vermeers, Rembrandts, like some real, real big names. And what's incredible no is no one's it. ever it found these been, works. To order because there were some really random things as well. Um, but uh, but they left the Rape of Europa. And what I absolutely love, and I think that um, Isabella Stewart Gardner would have completely approved, is that they've just put frames in the in the museum. There are just blank frames where the works that have been taken would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> they, they, they cut them from their frames, did they not? As an art historian, I kind of want to like, it makes me feel a wee bit sick, even at the thought of that, oh, someone yeah, taking a knife to a painting. Oh. But uh, yeah, so they were... So I think uh, the Rape of Europas have probably had a, a, a lucky escape twice now. Well, that's it. And like we said before, you can see this incredible series of works at the National Gallery in London. And then it's doing its wee world tour, quite rightly so. It will be, I, think, I wonder how Isabella would feel to have all well, six have of them in, their, in her home or five of them. She would have been out for two weeks, weeks solid. They should have been there months on end, I think. <laughs> She can come to the imaginary dinner party too, I think, can't she? <laughs> she would be great. Her and Peggy Guggenheim, I think Peggy know, knew how to party. Yeah, totally. Peggy and the Duke, <laughs> oh my goodness, that would have been... I would, yeah, I would pay to be there. Yeah. <laughs> I um, could reconstruct the there... blue room. <laughs> I actually, it reminded me of like... When you were telling me about it, I was sort of like, oh, so he was the first sort of original Fifty Shades before Fifty Shades. Yeah, thing, no, really. Blue, um, exactly. Red Room, Blue Room. How interesting. I wonder if, if um, she she knew of him. I don't know. Probably because all of this documentation hasn't just suddenly come to light. It's all, you know, it's all been there. So I would like to think that she probably did. Um, there's no reason that she wouldn't have done as far as I'm aware, so. So who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe we've cracked it. Maybe we've actually, together, through looking at Titian, we've <laughs> discovered the inspiration behind Fifty Shades of Grey. There we go. Oh. <laughs> All before midday. I think, what was her name? <laughs> what was her name? James, what was her name, the author. Um. So is there anything else that you would like to share with us about the, the stories behind these incredible oh, works? what else and... have I got? Well, there is a Russian mm -hmm. art collector who has done incredibly well. Um, the, so there were lots and lots of different versions of, the, of Venus and Adonis. It was a, an incredibly popular image, probably mm -hmm. because Venus basically gets hers. You know, so Venus throughout, you know, all of loads of paintings, loads of stories is, wreaking havoc um and you know with other people's love lives and, and and so on and in venus and adonis it's her who is accidentally struck by cupid's arrow and falls in love with adonis and begs him not to go off hunting he does go off hunting and he gets killed so very very popular um painting and there were loads of 
different versions of it. So the painting that has now been established as the, the, the work that was sent to Philip II of Spain is now in the Prado. Um, and it was actually... I mean, oh. there's still there's still some discussion and and debate, but it's thought that it was that one because of a crease actually in the painting. Um, so there's a crease across, kind of, a, you, and you can see it if you go to the exhibition. Just have a look, and you can see it sort of just crosses um, Venus's neck, and it's all along the canvas. And um, Philip II actually wrote to Titian and complained about this crease when it turned up in London. Um, that's when he was with Mary, uh, Mary Tudor. When he, yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, Tudor. lots mm -hmm. of different versions, but because of this crease, the original or the the, the one that was sent to Philip II has now been um, established as the one in the Prado. And it was thought for ages because there are sort of slightly um, slight variations of composition within um within the within the sort of the, the basic theme and it was thought for ages that this painting in the prado was the first of this particular composition but then a french art dealer bought um a copy of venus and adonis and it was thought not to have been by titian um, in 2005 for £50,000 and he sold it for a really great profit to a Russian collector but the Russian collector had it properly analysed and when they were looking at this painting they realised for a start that it definitely wasn't a fake that it was by Titian's hand so the French art dealer was like what? But they also realised that, oh. in fact, the the version in Moscow was the original composition for the painting that was sent to Philip II of Spain. So, kind of extra kudos for that. So, uh, so yeah, there is a French art dealer that is out there somewhere who is still probably spitting tax. I would imagine he has given away an incredibly yeah. valuable work of art. Um, just to put that in context, that the, the Diana and Callisto and Diana and Actian were bought for the nation in 2008 for a cool 50 million apiece. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. And the those two, the, the, the Diana paintings, they actually, they split their time, do they not, between, because they were initially, they were up in Scotland in the National Gallery in Edinburgh. Yeah. And they kind of, they, they split, they, it's, a, it's a something like they rotate... Yes. Which yes. museums yeah, they, they're, exactly. they're showing so I don't know. It's, every it few years? Like two or three years or something. Um, I don't actually know. But yeah, they split their time between Scotland and London. I love that though, this sort of like um, cross-border sort of relationship and, um, you know, sort of artwork on a, on a loan cycle sort Isn't of thing. It? I think that's you know, really interesting. Because my opinion is just, my goodness, just let yeah. as many people as possible see these things because they are fantastic. Absolutely. Um, well, Lynn, thank you so, so much for coming on and, and sharing with us this story beyond the canvas um, of these incredible works by Titian, uh, which, as we said previously and throughout the um, the podcast, you're able to see at the National Gallery, which is running, we think, now until January. Nobody's really sure, thanks COVID. And then it's coming to Edinburgh and then the Prado in Madrid. And then it will be in the Isabella Stewart Garden um, Museum in Boston. 
Um, before you go, um, so where can I people am, find oh, you and find out what you're so up to? Thank you having me. I have absolutely loved chatting to you, Joe. If anybody is interested in me, they can find me on Instagram. It's Lynn underscore Beyond the Palette. So that's um, B-E-Y-O-N-D, the P-A-L-E-T-T-E. And I am on Facebook as well. I think it's just Beyond the Palette on Facebook. That's amazing. And you do you do tours as well um, in the National Gallery in London. So if anyone finds themselves looking for a tour guide, right. I would definitely say um, get Lynn involved. You have a real passion and fabulous way of talking about art where you don't you don't make it this pretentious thing you, it's so funny and engaging and you do these incredible videos on instagram as well which i just love I and do, i really yes, look forward to I and do you do a, a weekly live as well do you know 11 so 11s is with lynn we kind of look at the weird and wonderful nothing is too weird for 11s is with lynn basically well there you are <laughs> i must say you've had some real sort of stonkers on there where i've been like where is that <laughs> I have my sources. You must put a book together, Lynn. Like <laughs> surely that that's you've got that's got to oh. be one of your projects. <laughs> um, I've loved. Thank you so you, so thank much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And there you have it, the end of another episode of the Joe's Art History Podcast. I would just once again like to take this time to thank Lynn for coming on the podcast and speaking so passionately and entertainingly about this series and the the owners and the stories behind the canvas of this incredible series by Titian. Like I said at the beginning, there is a little bit of overlap in the recording for some reason, which I'm not too sure, so it kind of sounds like, particularly right at the end, that Lynn and I are speaking over each other. Um, my editing skills are not up to scratch. What you might not have heard when that happens right at the end is that Lynn, every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, does a live on Instagram called 11Zs with Lynn and she really sort of delves into the weird and wonderful in art history. It's really, really entertaining and I would highly recommend that you tune in and that you follow Lynn as well if you check her out on Instagram. She does these incredibly entertaining videos where she's perhaps the artist himself or she's in a newsroom discussing something. She's just brilliant and please go follow her. You will not regret it at all. All the images that we refer to in this episode will be available to view on the highlights reel of my Instagram page, which is Joe's Art History, or you'll be able to find them on my website, which is www.joesarthistory.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure that you like, rate and subscribe on whatever platform you're currently listening to them. And if you perhaps don't have an Instagram or don't want to go onto my website, you can also find the images on my YouTube channel, watch along on YouTube and as we mentioned something I insert the, the image into the little video that I make and people seem to be quite enjoying that, I'm getting quite nice feedback about that so please do go check it out on YouTube as well and that's also something that you can just have on in the background should you wish. Um, if you want to get in touch with the podcast you're very welcome to, you can email me joesarthistory at gmail.com Finally, I would just like to thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and that you've learned a little something. I know I definitely have. And if you're in London or Edinburgh, Madrid, Boston, um, do make sure that you keep an eye out for when the Love, Desire, Death exhibition is coming. 
to a place near you. It's a really beautiful series of paintings and I would highly recommend, you know, really as a once in a lifetime thing to try and see these works. And they're incredibly beautiful. So if you can get yourself to one of these places, I would thoroughly encourage you that you do. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Jo McLaughlin, your host and your resident art historian, and I will see you next time on the Joe's Art History Podcast. Until then, keep learning and remember, art is for all.